You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now present Your Life is Worth Living, hosted by Al Smith. Hello, Radio Maria family, and welcome to this week's edition of Your Life is Worth Living, Reflections from the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. For over 50 years, Archbishop Sheen captivated audiences on both radio and television. Millions tuned in each week to hear his messages of hope and encouragement. On this week's broadcast, we will share a few of those reflections with you. And so we'd encourage you to sit back and relax and enjoy one of the greatest communicators of our time, the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. Hello, Radio Maria family, and welcome to another edition of Your Life is Worth Living. I'm your host, Al Smith, and I want to thank you for joining me this morning. Uh, this afternoon, this evening, whenever you're listening to us uh, through a tape delay or uh, encore broadcast. Uh, But it's amazing with the uh, internet how you can listen to a broadcast whenever you want. And many of you listen on our on-demand feature on our website. And many of you may tune in on our regular scheduled time of Wednesday evenings at 9 o'clock or Mondays afternoons at 2 Uh, And again, it doesn't matter when you listen, we're glad that you are listening. And so thank you for joining us. Today, Bishop Sheen is going to give a reflection entitled, Fools for Christ's Sake. And uh, we are are all called to be fools for Christ. And uh, Bishop Sheen will enlighten us on that topic. Uh, But before we get to that reflection, we will have him share a talk entitled, Collective Life or Collective Death. So I'd ask you to please sit back and relax now and enjoy one of the greatest communicators of our time, the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. Just a couple of days ago, I called up Harry Hirschfield, and I said, Harry, I'm going to talk on war. Have you got a story for me? And he told me that a friend of his went into the Army recruiting office and wanted to enlist to fight against the commies. He said, I want to go to battle with them. He said, I want to cut their ears. I want to slice their throats. I want to use flamethrowers. Recruiting officer said, suppose they do that to you? He said, well, what what have they got against me? (laughs) This subject is really about war, collective life or collective death. And... uh, we will go back tonight to someone that we mentioned once before. In fact, we gave a whole telecast to him. Namely, Gaillard de Chardin, because he once said that that is the alternative before us. But he was in favor, of course, of collective life. So we will give you, first of all, collective life as he presents it, and then we will give the other side of the picture.
he holds that the evolutionary process that's been going on for many, many years was one in which matter became more and more complex and finally life appeared. And eventually, man appears on the scene. Now he holds that for the last 30,000 years, there has been no great development, extraordinary development, in either the brain or the body of man. Which brings up the question, from this point on, is evolution going to stop? No, he said it's going to take a different direction. So that if we, if we mark this as the evolutionary unfolding of the universe up to man, he says that now, instead of being vertical, the development will be horizontal. And the world will tend toward a collective life, toward socialization. We'll become more and more one. Cultures will be unified. The division of races and classes and the like will be boiled and fused away. Men will live less and less in isolation and personality will become richer thanks to the fact that it is in community now as we know from his from his ideas there is something at the base of all this which is urging the evolutionary process upward and, and that is to say alpha which is love for him and it's love that's going to unite man now this is, therefore, collective life. That is the Chardin, and also many, many others. The opposite view is one that has already also been suggested, which is collective death. Here, a group of thinkers also believe, just as he does, that we're going to tend toward socialization, but with this difference. You see, Marx taught that. So did Lenin. In fact, that's the essence of communism. But there's this difference, that in the new collectivity, the person is lost in the mass under communism. Very much like a grape. has all of its life squeezed out of it, but it makes the wine. And so personalities are ground until they become the mass conscience, the mass mind of the collectivity. But where does collective death come in? Well, Nietzsche was the one who said that this would be the way it would come about. 
we would first of all have socialization, which we've already indicated. Socialization would bring one man to the top, would dominate practically all humanity. He would be the superman. What would the Superman do? The Superman would eventually produce chaos. Now Dostoevsky, not that he held this view, but he foresaw it before Nietzsche ever spoke of it, because he lived in Siberia under the old Tsarist regime. Remember, he was the one who said that there are two ages to humanity. From the gorilla to the death of God. Now we're at that stage now. God is dead, so they say. And the second stage is from the death of God to annihilation. Chaos. How does Nietzsche, who gave us this idea, believe that the Superman will come into being? what he calls a transvaluation of values. Now that sounds very learned, but this is what it means simply. It means that men will go on doing evil and evil and evil until they no longer have remorse. Conscience is destroyed. Then men can say, as Nietzsche put it, evil, be thou my good. Good, be thou my evil. And Dostoevsky saw all of this coming, as I said. He made one of the characters in his novel put it this way. There is a time coming, and it's almost here, when men will say, there is no such thing as sin. There's no guilt. There's no conscience. There is only hunger. And men will come, crying and fawning to our feet, saying, Give us bread. We are your slaves. So there are a group of thinkers who believe that we are tending toward collective death. Take Cardinal Newman, for example, 1871. Someone said, who will be the vandals and the goths of the 20th century? He said, they will arise out of our cities. And they will be the scourges of God. Cortez. Spanish philosopher, way back in 1849, that men and men will tend towards greater and greater socialization until they produce an evil one and will bring some great annihilation to the world. Well, those are the two sides of the picture. We're going to concentrate more on the second side of the picture this evening.
namely on collective death. How will it come into being? What will bring it about? What are we working toward? Well, a new Bethlehem. That's what we're looking, working toward. A Bethlehem without a child. With new wise men. We'll bring gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Not like the old gold of the old wise men, the old frankincense, and the old myrrh. Gold, power over pleasure. Primacy of profit. Cut corners. Anything to make a buck. Frankincense. modern science of scent, chemistry, biochemistry. Myrrh. What was myrrh for? Burial. Burial. Power over death. Collective death. Now, we'll go through the three. Gold, we need not talk about. That's too obvious because that's one of the gods of our modern world. Frankincense. Chemistry, biochemistry. Jean Rostrand, one of the great French biologists, said evolution has bungled up to this point. We could do better. And we scientists must work until we produce a Superman. One of the winners of the Nobel Prize in the United States suggested that there be kept in a refrigerator for years the sperms of the great strong men Another American, a winner of another Nobel Prize, suggested that through hormones, most women be rendered sterile, and only the few who were really strong would be preserved for these strong men until we reproduced a Superman. In other words, the new wise men are fumbling with the levers of life. It's not the ordinary mortals they envisage. It's the giants. Now we come. We've had gold, frankincense, and now we come to myrrh. Collective death. And here we're going to give you now a 
a brief history of weapons until we come to the one that can produce collective death. What was the first weapon that was ever used in the history of the human race? The first weapon that was ever used was a club. By Cain. He killed his brother. And there was thus woven into the fabric of civilization. The blood of fellow man. What was the second weapon? The second weapon, weapon was a sword. One of the descendants of Cain. Lamech. The first polygamist, incidentally. By one of his wives, he had a son that was called Tubal-Cain. T-U-B-A-L-C-A-I-N. And Tubal-Cain made the first sword. And Lamech... Lamech wrote a song. The first war song that we have. It was a song that was dedicated to his two wives. And that song was... God said that he would take sevenfold vengeance on anyone who would harm Cain. Now with the sword, we can take vengeance seventy times seven. We have a vengeance stronger even than the vengeance of God. And this out of the city that Cain found the secular city for he walked out of the presence of God and the sword was made. Then men fought with bows and arrows until to come to the crossbow in 1139. Crossbow was nothing but an ordinary bow except it was made of steel. It was about five or six feet high. And it was outlawed in 1139 by the Second Lateral Council, Lateran Council. Imagine. War would be too terrible with crossbows. It would bring collective death. Next. 1892. Maxim invented the silencer. Men said, now there'll be no more wars because men will not fight if they cannot hear an explosion. This would be the great deterrent to war. 1893. Nobel. 
Nobel invented modern dynamite. And the press and the books of the world at that time said, this is the great deterrent of war. There will never be another war because war would be too terrible. Nobel made a fortune of $45 million with his dynamite. At some remorse of conscience, and he left the money to establish the Nobel Prizes. That's where they came from. Dynamite. Next, in the evolution. December the 2nd, 1942, two scientists standing on a squash court at the University of Chicago gave a signal, they started a reactor, neutrons barred bombarded uranium to make plutonium, it was the beginning of the atomic age, and the reactor worked for 28 minutes. February the 11th. 1943, nobody yet knew of atomic energy, nobody in the public. But in Rome, on the 11th day of February, 1943, Pius XII, addressing the Pontifical Academy of Science, and remember this date, said, There has been an invention by which uranium one cubic meter of uranium can be bombarded with neutrons and in one one hundredth of a second it can lift a weight of one billion pounds sixteen miles in the air we hope he said that this will always be used peaceably if it is not it will bring great harm in the cities where it is used as eventually to the planet itself. Eventually to the planet itself. He repeated those words in 1954. July 16th, 1943, Los Alamos, Mexico. There began a countdown starting at 50. When it reached zero, an atomic bomb was exploded that made a crater 25 feet deep, 400 feet wide. Truman was at the Potsdam Conference. He received the telegram. Babies born. He knew what it was. The atomic bomb had exploded and everyone rejoiced. August 16th. August 6th. 1945. 8.30 in the morning, an airplane banked over Hiroshima, dropped the first atomic bomb, know the story. 
1949, Einstein was said, what are we going to do with atomic energy? He said, come back and see me in 20 years, and I will tell you. In 1869, Jean Cour, a French publisher, was taking dinner with Louis Bertrand, Bertolot, and Claude Bernard scientists, and they said, we've just begun to list the alphabet of destruction, and in the 20th century, we will have completed that alphabet. And with that, John Coeur said, and in 100 years from now, I think that perhaps God will come down from heaven like a night watchman, rattling his keys, and he will say, gentlemen, it's closing time. Russia have spent $140 billion on nuclear arms. If they were spent on peace, we could have raised the national income of the world. Of the poor nations of the world, threefold. How we need peace. Bye now, and God loves you. Our sincere thanks to the Fulton J. Sheen Company, who has given us permission to share these broadcasts with you today. I invite you to make Bishop Sheen a part of your family audio and video collection. You can call them toll-free at 1-866-357-4336, or visit the official website for purchasing Catholic Family Videos and DVDs of Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen's recordings from the Catholic television series, Life is Worth Living. The web address is www.bishopsheen.com. You will find rare collections of Catholic family video recordings addressing a variety of topics such as morality, Mary the Mother of God, angels, Catholic Holy Days, and other faith-based subjects. So call toll-free today, 1-866-357-4336. Again, 1-866-357-4336. And on the web, www.bishopsheen.com. And on behalf of Bishop Sheen, God love you. You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now continue with the program, Your Life is Worth Living, hosted by Al Smith. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Heavenly Father, teach us to be fools for Christ's sake. We ask this gift through the foolishness of the cross. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.
T.S. Eliot prophesied that the world would not end with a bang, but with a whimper. We will be played out. Bourdieu suggested that at the end of time, the earth would give a great yawn and the devil would come out of his mouth. And another poet, Abramson, said, Some men die by the sword, and others go down in flames. But most men perish inch by inch in play and little games. And then in a lighter mood, I think it was Kaufman, Kenneth Kaufman, I think my soul is a tame old duck dabbling around in barnyard muck, fat and lazy with useless wings. But sometimes when the north wind sings and the wild ones hurtle overhead, it remembers something lost and dead and cocks a wary, bewildered eye and makes a feeble attempt to fly. It's fairly content with the state it's in, but it isn't the duck it might have been. Some Boy Scouts were playing first aid, and tags would be put on each of them, wounded in the arm, and foot hurt, and so forth, waiting for the first aid group to come. One of the boys had a tag on him, serious bleeding. He waited for a long period of time, and then he added to the tag, bled to death, gone home. So we are face to face with taking life in America rather easily. And we have to do something about it. Remember our blessed Lord in the story of the fig tree. We recall it here in Luke, the 13th chapter. Man had a fig tree growing in the vineyard, and he came looking for fruit on it, but found none. And so he said to the vine dresser, Look here. For the last three years, I've come looking for fruit on this fig tree without finding any. Cut it down. Why should it go on using up the soil? Why encumbereth it the ground? Why is energy declining? There are two theories about energy. One is that we have just a certain amount of it like money in the bank. And when it's spent, we're exhausted. The other theory is that there's a blockage of the energy. And energy itself can be renewed. As a matter of fact, we never get the second wind until we've used up the first. 
We never enjoy the swim until after the shock of the first cold plunge. And hypnotists have proven that if it is suggested to a man that he is strong, he can lift a weight 60% higher than normal. If it is suggested to him by hypnotism that he's weak, he can only lift 40% less. I think the secret of all energy is that as sanctity declines, energy declines. When the love of Christ begins to peter out, then we lose energy. Now we've suggested the remedy of wasting some time, and that's going to be our appeal. Waste some time for Christ's sake. And here are three examples in the scripture about wasting time. First, the woman who came into Simon's house. She broke the vessel. No calculated less or more. Just the sheer ecstasy of giving. Not holding back. And that was the kind of foolishness that was praised by the Lord. And another instance quite remarkable is from the Old Testament. David had gone back to his own native town of Bethlehem. And I suppose, like every man who returns to his early home, there's a nostalgia for tastes and smells and scenes. And that was not unusual for David. What he yearned for was waters from the well of Bethlehem. And as the Holy Spirit tells the story in First Chronicles, chapter 11, verse 13, I hope, yes, one day, David was in the stronghold, and a Philistine garrison held Bethlehem. A longing came over David, and he exclaimed, If only I could have a drink of water from the well by the gate of Bethlehem. And at this, three strong men made their way through the Philistine lines, drew water from the well by the gate of Bethlehem, and brought it to David. Now, what did David do with it? David refused to drink it. He poured it out to the Lord and said, God forbid that I should do such a thing. Can I drink the blood of these men? They have brought it at the risk of their lives. If David had drunk of that water, the Holy Scripture would not be telling the story. It was something that was too precious to keep for himself. When we keep certain things for ourselves, they spoil. We keep flesh too much for ourselves and it turns into lust. 
Keep money too much for ourselves and it turns into avarice. Keep learning too much for ourselves and it turns into conceit. Keep time too much for ourselves and we waste our lives. I wonder if at the end of days the slow process of just wasting away is not due to the way we live during life. Have we been sufficiently wasteful of the gifts that God has given to us, whatever they happen to be, and particularly time? Just think of how much time a priest wastes in the course of a day. Over a daily newspaper, when the only things you can be absolutely sure are true are the sporting page and the Wall Street quotations. If, for example, the Redskins beat the Rams, you don't say, oh, this is a Republican paper. I'll go out and see what a Democratic paper has to say. But the time that's wasted, too, on useless reading. We say, well, I don't have time for an hour. Actually, we do not have time for anything else. And when this hour is wasted before the Lord, then it will be remembered like the water from the well of Bethlehem. There therefore has to be in our lives a kind of an impulsiveness, a giving that doesn't measure. We perhaps just reckon our lives and our time and our energy a little bit too mathematically. Let's go back to one of the great scenes in the gospel after our blessed Lord had multiplied the loaves and the fishes at Capernaum. Here the apostles were caught up in the glow of all of this acclaim. Christ was king. They called him king, they called him a prophet, but they never called him a priest who would die for them. That they rejected. But it was wonderful for the apostles to see our Lord acclaimed as king and as prophet. They were ready now to make him a bread king. Maybe he could drive out the Romans. And because the apostles were caught up in this enthusiasm, the Lord says, get over the other side of the lake. Leave here. They would be spoiled. And they start rowing across the lake. Our Lord goes up the mountaintop. The night passes, there's a storm, fog, rain. It is three o'clock in the morning. They are rowing against the wind and frightened. The Lord watches them all the time. We sometimes think that the Lord does not see us in storms. And the Lord comes toward them, walking on the water. They do not recognize him. They thought he was a specter, a ghost. And Mark tells us the reason. They did not understand the miracle of the loaves. 
They did not understand this unseen presence of Christ in the bread of life. So he was a ghost, a specter. And in their fear, our blessed Lord assures them, Fear not, it is I. Whenever I quote that text, Noli Timere Ego Sum, I am reminded of an artist at the time of Leo XIII who painted his portrait. And it was not a good one, and Leo knew it was not, but the artist insisted that Leo should autograph it, and Leo wrote at the bottom, Noli Timere Ego Sum. So our Lord tells them now, Fear not, it is I. Here comes the impulsiveness of a great man. A fool. Lord, bid me walk on the waters. What stupidity. Walk on waters. Can you imagine what must have gone on in that boat when Peter lifted up his right foot to put it on the water? Thomas must have said to him, You believe anything, don't you, Peter? Judas said, How much are you getting for it? Bartholomew, you going to join the circus? Andrew, you've always been an idiot. And John said, You damn fool, get back! But he walked. He really walked on the water. Because the Lord said, come, come. Believe the incredible, and you can do the impossible. It is our want of faith that holds us back. But then he sank. Why did he begin to sink? The gospel gives us the reason. He took account of the winds. He began reading some surveys. It was established statistically, 99 and 44, 100 percent of mankind cannot walk on waters. And all of the incredulities were in the winds. And he took his eyes off Christ. And Peter began to sink. This was a very strong manifestation of faith. And our Lord evidently expected it of his own. Because when he came down from the Mount of the Transfiguration, here at the base of the mountain was a distraught father with the possessed son. The church was there. The church. There were nine apostles. 
They had all tried to drive out the devil. And the father went to our Lord and asked him to drive it out. And then the church said to him, why couldn't we do it? Our Lord said, because you have no faith. That kind is driven not only by prayer and fasting. Paul, therefore, was right in asking for foolishness of the cross, as he told the Corinthians who needed that lesson so very much. We are fools for Christ's sake. We are like men condemned to death in the arena, a spectacle to the whole universe, angels as well as men. And then this magnificent translation here in Second Corinthians, the second chapter, verses 14 to 16. But thanks be to God who continually leads us about, captives in Christ's triumphal procession, captives in Christ's triumphal procession. When any captives were taken by the Roman power, they would always be brought into Rome after the conqueror. That was part of his glory. Now St. Paul says, we're captives of Christ the conqueror, captives in Christ's triumphant procession. In the last audience that I had with Pope Paul, I said, you're well named, Paul, because you're stoned as Paul was, stoned by your own, as Paul was stoned as he went from Lystra to Derby to Antioch of Pisidia. Yes, he said, I open my mail at midnight, and in almost every letter is a thorn. And when I lay my head at night on the pillow, I lay it on a crown of thorns. But, he said, I cannot tell you what ineffable joy I have in being able to fill up in my poor flesh the sufferings that are wanting, wanting to the passion of Christ for the sake of his body, which is the church. Now, applying this to ourselves, we have sick in our parishes. We have suffering in our cities. When we look at a sick person or one wounded, or infected, or cancerous. What do we see? If we have developed that vision of seeing Christ in the Eucharist, we'll see Christ in the cross of the sick. He is in our faithful, who are consciously offering up all of their sufferings in union with our blessed Lord. 
and we all are edified by certain ones whom we know, who say, well, I offer this up for my sins and for the sake of the church. He stuttered Kennedy, the Episcopalian chaplain of World War I, who was so sick and tired of the mud and the shell holes and the shocks, asked the question, how can God, who has made such a cruel world, have love in his heart for men? The sorrows of God must be hard to bear if he really has love in his heart. And the hardest part in the world to play must surely be God's part. I wonder if God can be sorrowing still, and has been all these years. I wonder if that's what it really means. Not only that he came once to earth and wept and was crucified. Not just that he suffered once for all to save us from our sins and then went up to his throne on high to wait till his heaven begins. But what if he came to this earth to show by the paths of pain that he trod, the blistering flame of eternal shame that burns in the heart of God. And he goes on to say, he begged his boy not to go to sea. His mother pleaded not to go to sea, but he went. He had to have his own way. Well, maybe that's how it is with God. His sons have got to be free. So the Father God goes sorrowing still for the world what's gone to sea. For I am beginning to see, inasmuch as you did it to one of these, you've done it unto me. So it isn't just only the crown of thorns, but has pierced and torn God's head. He knows the feel of a bullet, too, and his head the touch of lead. So Christ is suffering not only in those who have the faith, but he is suffering in those who do not know him. And this is their salvation. I have been in mission work for 16 years and have been in it much longer by affection. I was never very much concerned with the theological problem of what used to be called the salvation of pagans. Baptism of desire has a nicety of a theological answer, but it did not come into being until the 11th century. But traveling around the world and visiting leper colonies and seeing starving people fight vultures in Latin America, seeing starving mothers with starving children strapped to their backs in India, seeing 250,000 people a night sleeping in the streets of Calcutta, seeing all of the hunger and want and indigence and pain below this 30th parallel, I came to have a new vision of the world. And traveling through all those worlds, 
I never saw so many Christs in my life. Christ, yes. But you say, they don't know him. No, they do not consciously know him. But he is in them, as long as they do not rebel, he is in them by their sufferings. I was hungry. I was sick. I was naked. I was homeless. When? 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 No, they didn't know. But Christ was in them. And remember, these words were said to the nations, to the Gentiles. And that's how they're saved. And we will be surprised to see that many of those who have not known Christ as we have known him may be above us in the kingdom of heaven because they were always with his cross. Even though it was unwitting, Christ was with them. As he was with the pagan peoples who were pure, though they did not know, for example, that they had a model who was the Blessed Mother. So we plead then for a greater use of energy, less wasted time, more spent energies, more intellect poured out, energy poured out. And then God gives us strength. In the divine order, we get it only when we spend it. In the natural order, we have to keep it to have it. Given it will be given to you. Date et dabitur. And when there's this foolishness, then there's a tremendous transformation of heart and soul. Uh, one of the great characters of Russian literature, an, an evil man, Raskolnikov, the very word itself, Roskol, was protest. Raskolnikov had killed an old woman, not for any pleasure, not for any money, just simply because there was no distinction between virtue and vice. He lived with a prostitute. Sonia was her name. And one day he said to Sonia in a fit of anger, one of three things is going to happen to you. You will either jump off a bridge, you will go mad, or you will cut your throat. And Sonia picked up the 11th chapter of John and began reading the resurrection of Lazarus. In other words, there's always an open door, the open door of love. We have pleaded then in this retreat 
and centered it around one foolish act. No judgment is to be made of this retreat except the change that is made, the radical change. We're busy. We have no time for anything else, so we have to be fools and spend the time. And then we get back wisdom and what wisdom there is from communing with the Eucharistic Lord. We're captives, captives of his love, captives of his duty. In the immediate answering of sick calls, in the thorough preparation for sermons, the kindliness to the unlovable people, in the projection of the Christ spirit to those who would be unforgiving. All this is foolishness. But if you keep up this hour, you will be very thankful in your hearts, not just to me, but that the Lord was so good to you. You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now continue with the program, Your Life is Worth Living, hosted by Al Smith. Well, Radio Maria family, our hour has quickly gone by today, and so I'd ask you to join me again next week. And until that time, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord let his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord look upon you kindly and bring you peace. You have been listening to Your Life is Worth Living, hosted by Al Smith, here on Radio Maria Canada.